I think that all stories have value, all stories are worthwhile, but there's only a limited number of stories that people will pay money to watch. So discerning that difference, I think, is what makes a producer. This is the Act One Podcast. Our guest today is film producer Ralph Winter. I'm your host, James Dewey. I spoke with Ralph over Zoom back in May while sheltering in place during the coronavirus pandemic. Ralph, thank you so much for joining me. You bet. Uh, we're, we're recording this in the middle of the craziness. Uh, how are you doing? How's your family? Everybody's good. We're uh, sequestered at home. Make a trip out a couple times a week to get food or yeah. pick up uh, supplements or drugs or not drugs, but I mean, you know, prescription. <laughs> the, uh, other, the other drugs. <laughs> yeah, uh, but, uh, yeah, no, it, you know, you get a little batty and there's, um, there's only so many Zoom calls you can be on. Right. But, yeah, we're, we're fortunate to, to, uh, to be at home and, and be able to weather this and our families, extended families are doing okay. I think, you know, in the movie and television business, we're used to, I'm used to working hard for six months out of the country, not home, and then being home for three or four months, not working. So it doesn't feel that abnormal to me um, in that sense, but certainly the concerns of the economy and, you know, everyone else's health and all that is you know, overwhelming. So we were talking, you, you were, uh, you were working on a project and when all this kind of, uh, went down, you were in the, you were, you're in the middle of something, you were prepping something. Yeah. yeah. I was in Japan. We were shooting with Michael Mann, a thing called Tokyo Vice. It's for HBO max endeavor content is producing. And we were on day six. Uh, when we pulled the plug, we got 12 more days to shoot when, and if we ever go back, um, Tokyo, one of the more difficult places to shoot in the world. Really? Uh, well, it's just a, not just a different culture. They just think differently about everything. And um, so we didn't feel uncomfortable there. It was really the nuttiness in, in the U.S. that made our crew want to come home because their families were concerned and didn't know what was happening. And they were right. I mean, and, you know, it's, it's turned out to be the epicenter and all of that. So, uh, yeah, we shut down, I think, on Saturday, the 14th of March. We went in the office on Sunday to get flights out for people and tell everyone. And then um, I came home on the 17th on St. Patrick's Day. What is the, um, <clears throat> you know mobilizing i don't know how big of a shoot that was for you but what is it like having to because you, you obviously experienced a lot in in production over the years what's it like all of a sudden having to spin and turn on a dime and shut things down so quickly and move things so quickly is that have you well, done anything like that before have you ever had to do something like that before oh sure we we you know the 94 earthquake we were three weeks from shooting and had to turn that around and only lost a week uh, getting back up and running. I think part of that be- is how we build the infrastructure. 
we build an infrastructure that is flexible. Certainly working with someone like Michael Mann, we sort of built a healthy infrastructure to deal with him and to provide what he needs. So that actually came in, in, in good stead because we could mobilize people pretty quickly. Um, and, you know, movie and television shoots are very hierarchical in terms of the sort of authority and, and distribution of, of uh, decision-making. And so it, it can happen pretty quick um, and digital and all that. So, you know, it always takes time to answer people's questions and do all that, but we got people on planes pretty quickly and, and um, got people out of there. So wasn't bad for those who people who may be listening to this and they're going what does ralph do on these big projects <laughs> you know right don't you love that question ralph what do you do but what do you do um what my wife asks me all the time <laughs> what do you do what is wrong why, why do people pay you to do this <laughs> well look at a high level you know someone's got to be the sort of uh, leader, carry the flag, plant the flag, take the team over the goal line, any of those analogies, somebody has to be that person. And I think more than you would imagine, a lot of times while production needs people to will it into, into reality. Even though the budget's there, there's so many reasons to stop. There's so many reasons not to go forward. There's so many obstacles and questions. Um, I remember a quote, I think it was Colin Powell that said, you know, if you got 90% of the information, making a decision is no problem. Anybody can do that. When you got 60% of the information and making a decision, that's leadership. You know, so that's generally what it takes it is helpful to know, hey, we've been in this place. I know that we don't have all the locations yet. We don't have this knock laid down. This isn't nailed down. This actor, this cast, this piece, this prep. But, you know, after a while, you can sort of feel or smell, you know, a sense that you're going to make it or not. So at a high level, that's what it's about. It's providing, you know, leadership to figure out some of these things. I get called to work on stuff that is complex. Um, cause I've got that experience. Um, and so I'm very fortunate to do what I do and it's about making it work. I usually get the impossible things. How did we do a 10 episode series in Japan with Michael Mann on a TNT budget? Um, not easily, but you know, we we figured it out. Um, so it's, Everything you can imagine from sort of pulling together sources to organizing people to providing a sense of confidence and calm to, you know, make the right kind of decisions that keep the ball moving forward, knowing that the studio pays your salary. So you have to um, service their needs, but you also have to service the creative needs of what the property is and who the director is, because otherwise you won't get hired again. So you're always on a right. teeth plotter trying to figure out, you know, what's the best decision to make. What's and generally you always default to what's best for the picture. You can fight for that, and generally, the studio or the director will will understand. Um, deciding to shut down in Japan 
was not a widely admired decision on the creative side, on my producing and directing side. And, but I said to these guys, I was in Derek content, I would shut down. Otherwise you're going to be in the wrong side of history. And that turned out to be the right decision. But again, that was a 60% decision. That wasn't, not, it wasn't obvious. Uh, we could have kept going, but I think we made the right decision. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate at this stage in my career to do that. I mean, it's come from, you know, lots of little steps along the way to make those decisions. So when you were at Fox, um, you know, you, I remember, uh, well, a lot of people don't realize, first of all, let me just say, uh, before we get to the Fox stuff, people don't realize that um, how, because, because, you know, you don't talk about it. It's not a, but you have helped guide and mentor so many young filmmakers in this business. I can't tell you how amazing you have been. Uh, for me in particular, like I, you know, you, for Nathan Scoggins and I, when we made the least of these, we asked to meet with you. And for some reason you said yes. <laughs> we, you, we wanted to know if we could make this little script. Our question was, is it possible to make this, make this film for, it was like for a million dollars. And you sat down with us um, and you had breakfast uh, with us and you, were, you, you said yes, and here's how you do it. And you walked us through that breakfast, uh, your advice on how, how to make it happen. And, um, and you've done that for, for countless people. And you even let us hang out with you and work out of your office at Fox when you were there, when we were prepping that film. So I still am so grateful for you for that. And I remember that time so vividly. And I remember one of the things that your reputation was around town was you were the guy that could get it done. Like that was kind of, was that, I mean, I think you were, I think that was Rothman. Was Rothman over Fox at that time? I can't yeah, remember. It was yeah. I was mechanic when I started. Mechanic, yeah. Over because mechanic got um, got fired just before X Men came out. Yeah, and you you so you'd get called up to bat if there were if there were issues on on productions. What yeah. what? How did you develop that skill? What what is that skill that you find yourself being called in to figure out how to shoot this Tokyo Vice show on a TNT budget? how to do these big budget films and get them, get them in on budget on time. What, what would you attribute to how you have developed that, those skills that that's kind of become your reputation? Well, there's a, there's a lot of people out there that do this and I don't think it's rocket science. I think at a very basic level, it's, you know, being a person who does what they say they're going to do and you figure it out. It, it, there's so many people that are fake that say they can do it and can't deliver. And once you deliver for somebody, they remember that and talk about it. So from an early start at Paramount years ago, you know, it was all about, even when I was in post-production, can I, who's reliable enough to be sure that this pilot gets delivered to New York on time? And some of that, you've got to go the extra mile to do it, even though everybody should be doing their job. So I always remember the story that when I was at Paramount delivering these pilots at TV season, I was in post-production, I was an executive and um, getting these pilots ready and delivered by 7 a.m. 
in New York, uh, we had a service that if we delivered the pilot by LA, it was guaranteed delivered 7 a.m. in New York with a signature. So I was just sort of geeky enough that when my stuff had to be there, I would get up at three in the morning and check with the service to see where they were in the process. Where's the driver? Has he signed yet? Has he delivered? Because I didn't want that phone call to come to say, you screwed up. And sure enough, one day that phone call came, the president of the studio, like melting the phone line. Where's the project you told me? And, and then where is it? I, and I said, have you looked at your front door, sir? Because it's right there. It was signed for at 645. What are you talking about? And he walks out there and he gets it. He goes, oh, okay. Thanks. Click. I mean, you know, <laughs> the, 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 I, I shouldn't have to do that. People should follow through on what they say they're going to do, but a lot of people don't. And so by sort of going that extra step to be sure that you're going to be recognized as where the buck stops, that, that's, that's part of it. So, you know, filmmaking is not rocket science. It's pretty straightforward. It's not really complex. Um, and it's being straight, being honest with people. I tell Michael Mann the truth. I don't, I don't sugarcoat anything. And I'm not afraid to tell him that he's over budget or he's late or he's too expensive. Yeah. And you know, there's a way to do that. Right. Um, and, and, and he appreciates it. We have a relationship where he's like, you know, you're the only one who comes and tells me the truth and you don't lie to me. So it works. The, the, um, <clears throat> why? Simple I, stuff. I you probably heard this. I mean, I, I, I like, I, I wonder why, why is that, why is that seen as maybe more rare than it should be? Is it because, because, you know, you probably heard this, this town is run, run on fear. You know, everyone's worried about being replaced or the next person coming up or whatever. And so I think sometimes it's attributed to that. Maybe, I don't know. But what, why is, why is it seen to be somewhat rare to be a person that's just going to call it like it is sometimes? Well, you know, you don't get, you don't, you don't necessarily advance in your career to do that. I think I've, I've uh, hit some roadblocks by being blunt. I hit roadblocks at Fox by being blunt with Tom Rothman because I think he was wrong. Um, and we've since kissed and made up, but still I told him what, you know, what I think was the truth of the situation and he just didn't want to hear it. Um, so it doesn't necessarily help you doesn't make you advance. You advance by, you know, servicing people upward and not necessarily servicing, you know, your crew. But um, I sleep at night. I don't, uh, I don't regret many things. I maybe regret working on Left Behind, but I don't regret many things. <laughs> uh, um, and it's, you know, it's old fashioned to sort of, you know, get, move forward like that. And, and everybody's ambitious. Everybody wants what everyone sees in People Magazine and Entertainment Tonight. But uh, I think you've got to do the hard work. It takes time. And 
it builds something slower and better, but everybody wants to grab for the lottery ticket and the brass ring and, and, and make it happen faster. So, and, and this is something I love about you because we've talked about this in the past. You've always kind of had that <clears throat> kind of Midwestern work ethic that you've kind of brought into this, that it's not a, uh, like you've said it multiple times, even, even today, it's not rocket science. No. It's, it's hard work. You've just got to get in there. And I, I remember you uh, early on, I remember you talking about this and it really um, <clears throat> set in with me, which was, Hey, don't just know your job, know everybody else's job and, and don't let anybody outwork you. And I remember you talking about that, how you weren't going to let people um, beat you to set. You weren't going to let people uh, have the information before you. Like, I remember you saying all those things before and it, and it's, um, oftentimes I think a lot of people want to get into this business for exactly what you were saying earlier. It's, it's, they, they, you know, they want to get in for the parties and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and that's fine, I guess. But the truth of the matter is, is it's, is it's hard work and you've got to be willing to put the, put the hours in. And, um, and that's what I see you doing. And that's what I see why you've been able to accomplish is that, and you've been able to actually do the work. Well, it doesn't always pay off. I mean, you know, you piss people off and, and you know, they don't want to hire you and, and that's okay. Um, but again, you know, I, I think the fear issue is, is really rooted in your sort of self-worth and the greatest power that you have in Hollywood is the, is the willingness and ability to say no. Yeah. No one says no. Right. Um, when people want me to read their script, I reluctantly do that because I try to talk them out of it. And then I tell them, look, I'm going to tell you the truth. If I can't get to page 11, I'm done. And I'm going to tell you that. So unless you're prepared to hear why and how I only got to page 10, then I don't, I'm not interested in reading unless you are willing to hear that. Cause I'm not going to waste my time or yours. So right. it's, and then turning down a job or turning down a relationship because it's not going to build something yet. It could earn you a paycheck. You've got to weigh all those things carefully. Yeah. And um, your ability to say no is powerful. And um, that, that I think makes the difference in your own self-worth. Uh, and, but you know, all of this as well, Jimmy, you can't, you can't do this on your own. You, you, right. you would, you would, uh, wither. Yeah. I think they have, to, I've, I'm fortunate to have been married 46 years. Um, we've got a good relationship. She calls me on my crap all the time. <laughs> that's awesome. You know, you need somebody that speaks the truth to you as well. And, and doesn't, you know, I, I got to take the trash out and clean up just like anybody else. You know, she's clear about that. You know, I don't care if people, bring your coffee all the time you can get your own freaking coffee you know so yep it be grounded in that stuff you know who's your uh for you know for for what you are trying to accomplish on set um uh, oftentimes who's your best who's your best friend uh in production are you are you spending a lot of time with the line producer you spend a lot of time with the first ad who's the one that you're that you're oftentimes is your person that you're kind of maybe most connected to on a set yeah i mean 
generally these days I'm working as a line producer and a producer, kind of the creative and the operational. So I can, you know, earn the DGA benefits as well as help be a creative voice with the director. So you've got to build a relationship with the director, of course, but you know, it's probably a first AD. It's probably the production designer, the cameraman and the accountant. Those are probably the four people that I would spend the most amount of time with. Do you ever find yourself, because you've obviously hired and fired a lot of people. Do you ever find yourself in a situation, you know, from a leadership perspective, um, have you had instances where you've had to, like, how do you handle relational uh, conflict on a set? <clears throat> well, that happens all the time. I mean, it's just life. It's, it's the way things are. There's, you know, you can't perfectly cast the team so that everybody loves each other and sings Kumbaya every day. So, you know, I, I, I think some experience again in the church and small groups and, and trying to be a follower is helpful in terms of airing stuff right away, not letting it fester. Um, I'm not afraid to confront people about their crap. Um, and I welcome them doing the same with me. Um, I pretty much end up being the default person who has to go tell Brian Singer he can't do something or Brett Ratner or Michael Mann. And that's okay. Um, so you can do it with those people. It's not hard to go to the accountant and say, you know, straighten up and drink decaf, you know? Uh, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. You know, again, probably from experience, but I did this even when I was younger, but you know, age plays a part where you're the sort of older father figure on the set. And it's like, sure. you know, you don't want to piss off dad, you know, right. so right. just stay in line, do your job. You know, you can have complaints. Yeah. Okay. You know, but you're going to throw a hissy fit and, um, and, and you'll be off the set and you yeah. keep it up and you'll be gone. Yeah. So, you know, we gotta, we gotta, to me, it's about how we all get to the finish line together. It doesn't matter if the project is successful, but we kill each other in the process. That's not useful. That's not helpful. We all have to get there because we all start out trying to make a good product. We don't know if it's going to be a good product. Yeah. Um, we at least have to take care of each other and get to the finish line together. You, you've worked, you've worked uh, you know, under a lot of well-known leaders. Yeah, you know, there was Eisner at Disney, right? He was when yep. you were doing your Disney films. Katzenberg, uh, yeah. Katzenberg, uh, of course. And then um, you talked about Roth, uh, Rothman and Mechanic. Uh, you, even worked, you even worked with Harvey, Harvey Weinstein. I did, and, yeah. And, um, like, um, I'm, curious what, I'm curious what you have experienced. Um, probably not with Harvey. But, but, but what you have, maybe with, I don't know. Um, what have you seen uh, of great leadership when you, when you look at great leadership, great decision-making and you think to yourself, see that that's good leadership or, and even the reverse where you were like, you know what, that's bad leadership. Yeah, I think it's pretty straightforward. I think, you know, um, guys like Tom Rothman are very smart and uh, strategic 
to meet their goals. And so you got to understand sometimes you don't appreciate the decision they've made, but you got to understand it in the context of what they're trying to achieve as a head of a studio or, you know, trying to keep the fans happy or whatever. But certainly the better leaders, you appreciate the fact that they put the work in and they put time in. You know, what I didn't appreciate about Harvey is he didn't put the time in and his decisions were capricious. Um, probably the only time I almost quit a picture was with Harvey because of the, the stupidity of the decisions because it was so self-serving and so ill thought out. We were doing Crouching Tiger, um, the second movie in New Zealand. And eight weeks from shooting, Harvey summoned us to Malaysia where he was shooting Marco Polo. And because he didn't like where the budget was, he wanted us, while they were shooting Marco Polo during the day on those stages, he wanted us to come and stop what we were doing in New Zealand and shoot at night on the same stages. Wow. Wow. 500 years difference culturally, in terms of the stories we were telling, um, made no sense. I mean, it's just a really bad idea. And we spent two, unbelievably, two days arguing about this. And th that's when I felt deeply that I probably am not the person for this job. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to hurt someone being angry or <laughs> I'm going to say the wrong thing or I'm going to, I'm going to get hurt. Fortunately, Pete Berg, who was, an exec producer and doing some directing for us on that show, stepped up, lost his marbles with Harvey and convinced him that that was a really, really bad idea. Um, but that just showed that, that, you know, Harvey didn't care about the human cost, the crew or the logistics or the difficulty of it. Um, and he made a bunch of more so that was the last and you know good riddance he's not a good human being and i only interacted with him a couple of times in person and uh, you know he's it's sad but he's serving out his just reward yeah it's insane i didn't do any of the sexual things but you know just on the production side he was just not a kind human being no um Let's talk a little bit about um, your your X Men years. Although I think my kids want me to ask you at some point about Hocus Pocus, but um, <laughs> there it is. There it is in the background. Oh yeah, there it is in the background. Um, They're making another one. Apparently, they're talking about it. Oh yeah, that's what I heard. Um, how did uh, how did X Men how did X Men come to you? Uh, because that ended up being a big chunk of your your life uh, for a while there. Yeah, I was doing Mighty Joe Young at Disney uh, for Katzenberg and those guys. No, Katzenberg was gone. Um, that was 97. That was when um, Eisner was gone. Who was there? Dick Cook was running the studio. I don't remember. Anyway, making uh, that, and I got a call from Lauren Schuler Donner and from Brian Singer to come meet and talk about it. And I didn't really know much about that comic. I hadn't followed it. My son, um, you know, was over the moon about it and 
of course, now I figured out where all of his allowance went. It went to all these essential Wolverine <laughs> books and comic books that were lining his, mm. his room that I didn't really pay attention to. And um, I turned him down. And uh, they tried to mount it with another producer and it didn't work. And they came back to me and the script was different and I was in a different place. And um, so, yeah, I signed on to do that. Why, why did you originally turn them down? Just that the, you weren't then, interested in the property or? Not really interested. I didn't think they had a good plan. I didn't agree with, you know, the approach and um, just really wasn't, it wasn't a slam dunk. You know, when I sort of check off all the kind of criteria for me, it just didn't make a lot of sense. So. But, you know, they came back, I think, six months later, and it was interesting and challenging and problematic. But, you know, I liked Bill Mechanic and all those guys, and Tom Rothman was an executive under Bill. And So anyway, the studio part, the creative part, Lauren, it all – and I and I did some research in the meantime on Wolverine and seeing what that was like. So I love, I love the uh, – well, two things. One is – you know, there's a famous Hollywood story connected to that movie with Hugh Jackman, right? Like Hugh Jackman was not, I can't remember, when, when did he get cast? Because before it was Doug Ray Scott was supposed to play Wolverine, right? And he got held over for Mission Impossible 2? No, I'll, I'll, no. I was there. I'll tell you what the story is. Okay. Um, you can get it firsthand. So uh, we had a number of characters, number of actors that we wanted to, uh, to be in the movie. And we didn't have Wolverine cast by the time we started shooting. We didn't have him. When we started shooting, there was no Wolverine. There was no Wolverine you started shooting? No. Wow. So in July, we had a, a number of characters. Hugh Jackman wasn't one of them. And Duke Ray Scott, who was in Mission Impossible 2, was our leading candidate. Like we had a couple of others. I'd have to go back to the list and find out who they were. But Dugray had been injured in a motorcycle accident with Tom Cruise. So we were nervous about the stunts that we needed to do with Wolverine. If this guy could do it, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. Don't worry about it. I can do it. So I talked to him a number of times in Australia uh, where we were prepping in Toronto. And um, so I sent our costume designer down to measure him. And I said, when you measure him, I want a picture with his shirt off. Because he had broken some ribs. And sure enough, this is mid-August. And we were measuring him for wardrobe and into the deal making. And when I saw the picture, he was still wrapped. He was still wrapped and healing and moving a little. When I interviewed my costume designer, he was a little slow in his movements. So I recommended the studio that we didn't hire him and they agreed and we kept looking. And on the third day we were shooting in the, um, uh, it's called, a, what's it called? There's a circular hall where the mutant sort of uh, trial takes place with Xavier and uh, Magneto. Anyway, we were the third day there that evening, that Wednesday night, we had these actors, had this actor come in from London and he read for us a scene with, with Anna Paquin and a scene with uh, uh, Famke. And um, 
while the film was rolling, I, st I remember standing next to Brian saying, we don't even need to develop the film. This is the guy. We should hire him. Don't let him go home. So, uh, yeah, we cast him there on the spot. Wow. Wow. And, and, and I feel like so much of the success of those X-Men films was you. Was he just something about him. He's just such a great performer. And that you just seem to be, you know, whatever, whatever destiny type thing you want to talk about in terms of him being cast in that role. Absolutely. But, I think that's right. The franchise was lucky. I think he has more, he's turned, I don't know. Uh, I, I haven't followed Dugray Scott's career since, you know, would it have been the same? Would he have grown into that position the same way? Possibly. But, you know, like a lot of actors, you forget, talk about longevity. You know, Hugh is a, a 20 year overnight sensation. He'd been working his ass off as a kid. That's right. That's right. An actor. And he was doing curly on the West end of London you know, for Oklahoma, he was doing everything to sort of get attention and work hard. And, uh, you know, he's certainly grown into that role. And I was privileged to do four movies with him and watch that happen. But he's become a huge, you know, uh, asset on his own from all the stuff he's done, from Greatest Showman to all the different things that he involves himself with now in his charities, still married to the same woman. Um, I'll tell you a funny story. When I was doing the fourth movie, we were in Sydney. I was living in a little community called um, Darlinghurst. And by myself and having, you know, eating at a restaurant and reading a script. And the, the server came over and she said, you know, are you working the TV? But I go, yeah, I'm working on a movie. And who are you working with? I'm doing Wolverine. I'm working with Hugh Jackman. She goes, that's Deborah Lee Furness's husband. <laughs> Deborah Lee is amazing, and Deborah was a big star in Australia before Hugh was 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 a household name, and so she went on and on about Deborah, how she's amazing. That's awesome. All this stuff. So I went back to the set next day, and I told Hugh that story, and he goes, "Mate, I've been telling you, she's the boss. She's the one that's important." And I just think his response to that story. Um, as later, I remember when we were at the end of that shoot, he was thinking about going to New York and, and uh, he reiterated to me how she's the boss and it's important for the kids and what she wants to do. And one of the kids had a learning disability that could only be addressed by the schools in New York and uh, they moved. But he's a great guy, a normal guy. What you see is what you get. Um, He's a genuinely fun person to be around, but caring and sensitive. And um, he sent me, I don't know if I have it around. He sent me a very nice, uh, yeah, so this is it. So he made a limited, he commissioned a limited piece of art, you know, for uh, Wolverine. Uh, can you see that? Kind of, maybe. Yeah, you know, I can see it now, yeah. There it is. Wow. And, you know, just for the whole thing. And then he did a black and white version where he wrote to me and, you know, just said some very nice things about you were there from the beginning and your friendship. And I mean, that's a star that takes time to wow. do that with just a few people that he remembered from, from 10 years ago when it all, 20 years ago when it all started. And, um, 
That's awesome. That guy is. So there's a few people like that. I think Tom Hanks is probably like that. I don't know Tom as well. Yeah. But there's a few people like that. So you, um, One of my favorite stories you've told in the past about <clears throat> that X-Men shoot that, for that first film is, uh, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about it, is your, the scene where Magneto is trying to kill all the cops when they come to um, stop them. And uh, talk a little bit about that, because it, it, what, what we see in the film today was not what was supposed to be in the film. You know, the script originally called for um, a gun held to a cop's head and yeah. pulling the trigger and killing him. And what I argued twofold was, I think the image of someone killing a cop on screen is horrific and sends the wrong message to the audience we want to cultivate. And secondly, from a dramatic point of view, the holding back of that brings far more drama and tension to the scene than actually pulling the trigger. And, you know, I lobbied that directly with Ian, not with the director, because I, I, I went to the director first and he didn't really care, but I went to Ian McKellen and said, do you want to be known as that guy? Because it's going to relate back to you. And I was sort of a little out of school. <laughs> I shouldn't do that with actors because I really believe that a director needs to be the only voice to keep it clear with, with them. So I, don't, I really don't do that very often, but I felt so strongly that we were going to be sending the wrong message and that Ian would inadvertently be tagged with that. I do remember having that conversation. And uh, yeah, so he believed, he, he was convinced and convinced Brian of the same. And, that's the scene that's in the movie, and it's and it's one of the and it's one of the best scenes. Um, Powerful, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. When you receive a script, I think people are curious to know when you mm -hmm. receive a script, what are you looking for? You talked about earlier, you know, you got to get past page eleven. But I, I'm curious when you sit down and read a script, when Ralph Winter reads a script, what are you looking for? What 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 is it about a script that actually gets you excited to want to spend? so much time away from your family to, to work on. So I think that all stories have value. All stories are worthwhile, but there's only a limited number of stories that people will pay money to watch. So discerning that difference, I think is what makes a producer. So I'm looking for what's commercial, what people will actually spend money to go see. I read a lot of scripts that are touching and heartwarming, but I don't know if anybody will pay for it. Um, and so that's a, it's a, I don't know that I can describe exactly what makes something commercial, but it's my, you know, sort of instinct that this is something other people would want to see as well. And, and more so than, you know, just your mom, because your mom is going to love no matter what you do. Right. Um, but if you want to make it a business, you know, it's got to be something that you can get a wide audience to salute, to pay attention to, to lay out five bucks, 15 bucks, be it streaming or in the theater. Um, so yeah, I, that's what I look for. And then inside of that, if I'm reading a comedy and I don't laugh, that's not a good sign. Yeah. If I'm reading a drama and I don't, you know, I'm not moved emotionally. I'm looking for emotions. 
people go to the movies for emotions. And if I don't have any emotion when I'm reading it, why am I going to have emotion when I, when I shoot it? So um, that's generally stuff that I want to produce, stuff that I want to make, stuff that I want to champion. It's got to have some emotional content to it that is going to be worth paying some money to see. Yeah. You, I'm a huge, uh, I'm a huge James Bond fan. And I remember one time you telling the story about how you uh, were approached to work, work on them and you turned them down and it, but I wonder if you could kind of talk a little bit bit about that. What was, that was a, if I remember correctly, was that, that was a right around the time of the reboots with Pierce Brosnan, right? Uh, I'm I'm fuzzy. It was Goldeneye was the picture. So it was 90. That's it. 95. Yep. That's it. And um, I've been doing a, a movie in uh, actually 25 years now. <laughs> I, was, I started as a child, Jimmy. This I'm not old. I started. As a child. <laughs> um, but the Hackers is now a 25 year anniversary. I just got an email about an interview for that. But I was doing a movie in London, and it was going well. Ian Softly uh, directing. It was Angelina Jolie and Johnny, Johnny Lee Miller, and um, script was okay. We thought it was going to be better. So, did better than the movie. Um, and while I was there, I was approached by the head of UA, John Talley, a famous executive, um, to leave. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't realize I'd done something wrong. She said, no, no, I want you to leave this show. It's in fine shape. You're going to be fine. But I want you to go help me and take over Bond because it's in trouble. And so um, I said, well, you know, <laughs> I got to talk to the boss. You know, we're going to see what, what's, uh, what, what could happen. And, you know, it's pretty exciting for me having done, you know, Star Trek movies with the original cast and a bunch of other movies and to put a Bond movie on your resume and be on three continents and six months and all that was pretty exciting for a career move. Um, in my private life, in September, my father-in-law had committed suicide and I was on this picture and I didn't go home. I had the kids with me in New York um, and I sent the kids back and I had a strong faith community around that took care of my wife. And, but I really underestimated the impact for her of the suicide of her father. And um, so I came, I flew her to New York and I flew back from London and we had that conversation and I began to fully realize the impact of my decisions as well as the impact of that event in her life. And, um, you know, it was that sort of uh, never forget conversation that, you know, I could take the job if I wanted to, but being away for an additional six months, I'd be coming home to a different address where, you know, the family would just not, it just wasn't going to last. So I went back to John Kelly and told him, no, I couldn't, I couldn't do the job. And he said, well, is the job, I don't understand. Is it too hard? I go, no, I, I'm choosing my family. I, I'm, I'm, I can't do that. And I'm, it, it pains me, but I'm, I, I just can't do it. And I made a commitment to my wife at that point that I would not leave the country out of town uh, until the kids were out of high school. So that, you know, and, um, 
So John Kelly did not understand, never spoke to me again. Um, wow, really? I finished off the job, which was, uh, was good and it was okay. And then I came back to six months of unemployment because, you know, there's just in Glendale where I live, there's not a lot of movies and television shows that shoot. Right. You know, it just, it, it it's a, was a good testing. It was a good thing of, you know, have I done the right thing? I, I made the right choice, did, I think. But how are you going to take care of us? What's, what's here for the family? What do we do? Run the accounts down to zero, all that. And then, you know, out of the blue, it was six months or so, I got a call to work on a TV show in the Valley, sleep in my bed every night. And the TV show was with, you know, Steven Spielberg. So I, for two years, I worked every day with Steven Spielberg, uh, got into the DGA with him, directed an episode because of him. And um, so I feel like there was, God was honoring the decision that I submitted myself to that. Yep. Um, it wasn't easy at the time. I, a lot of my friends thought I made a mistake. Yeah. And, you know, over the length of time, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It wasn't the right decision because I still, you know, have kids that want to call me and talk to me. Yeah. And, and the reason why I wanted you to tell this story, Ralph, is because one of the things that I feel like we don't talk enough about uh, as people of faith in this business is the idea of counting the cost of this business oh, yeah. and, the to- and the toll that it takes on families. Yeah. The toll, and, and look, all families have problems, all families go through stuff, but <clears throat> how you respond to difficult times, you know, we're supposed to be, you know, different. <laughs> That's actually what we're, we're yeah. supposed to be different. There's supposed to be something different about us. Yeah. And, and, uh, and the fact that in that moment, you saw what was happening and made a shift and a change that cost you short term, uh, but paid off in dividends long term with what really matters. Like, to me, we have to do a better job at being different. And that doesn't mean making um, evangelistic films. That, that somehow that's translated into or our, our art has to be different. I guess it can be, but I don't think that's the message. The message is the gospel supposed to change you. You're supposed to be different, right? Yeah, right. That's exactly right. And it's how we treat crew. It's how we treat people around us. That's what you're known for. Not necessarily the product that you uh, were involved in. Unless you're the sort of auteur that is the writer, director, producer, actor, cinematographer, star, you know, then that, then you're Michael Mann. But, you know, those are few and far between. And I think that it is about how we treat people. That is how we should distinguish ourselves. And it's also in terms, I, I think it, relates as well to the materials we choose. Um, and I just don't know that movies and television are the best evangelistic approach. I don't, I don't buy it. So at any rate, I do think there's a cost to also telling the truth. I've been fired on a number of projects and you pay the price. Yep. You tell the truth. And I told the truth on the Wolverine movie with Tom Rothman. I never worked there again. I haven't worked at Fox ever again. Yep. Um, I told the truth on um, a TV pilot I did for Netflix and Skydance and, you know, never worked there. So not everyone likes that. 
but you gotta you gotta tell the truth. I think I, more people. I think more people sh- should be fired. <laughs> <laughs> you learn something. You learn something, don't you? It's sobering. Yep. And yep. It, you choose your words carefully. Yep. Um, and you find out who are your friends and who aren't your friends. Um, so I mean, that's not a, it's not a fun thing to go through, but. Uh, you can't a, be afraid of that. If you're afraid, of, if you're afraid of that, that's you're living for the wrong things. That's right. Yeah, it's not fun to go through, but hopefully, the the point of it will be to learn. Do you have any? Because I can't. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask this as a Star Trek fan. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't have relationship with very few people who actually can call him Bill, Bill Shatner, yeah. like you, like you can. Um, everyone else I know. Um, I'm just curious if you have any, any kind of fun uh, inside stories about your time uh, with, uh, with, the, with the original cast of Star Trek and making those films. We, you know, we had a lot of fun over the years. Um, I remember when we were doing probably the low point of that series, the Final Frontier, the one that Bill directed. I spent a lot of time and uh, we we really did have a lot of fun shooting that movie. We enjoyed each other's company. I remember we were out on Ridgecrest um, where we did a lot of the location work at Trona Pinnacles. And I remember a number of meals. I don't know what the topic was. I, you know, I remember what we were doing. Um, but we'd come back and three or four of us would go out to dinner. And I, we laughed so much that we hurt. The sides, your sides hurt. And I remember at one point, Bill was on the floor laughing. He was on the floor of the restaurant. He, he, he didn't fall out of his chair, but he, it was just, we, we, we just enjoyed our time. I, I also remember um, when we were scouting that in Ridgecrest, we had gone up, I think we had to be at one of the locations at daybreak. So it was really early. Um, and then we went to breakfast and we went to a Denny's. So there's about five of us that were at Denny's in Ridgecrest. Ridgecrest is where 395 and the 14 freeway meet. It is nowhere. There's a military base out there, uh, a couple of military bases like Edwards Air Force Base. There is nothing. This is where they land the shuttles and all that stuff. There's like nothing. So we're in nowhere. And we're sitting at a booth and the server comes over and kind of vaguely recognizes Leonard Nimoy and Bill Shatner, but can't quite place it. And in this situation, can't, can't put all the pieces together. So they, they're clueless. They're, they're not admitting to anything that, that they're doing any of this. So another server comes over and recognizes, recognized Leonard and recognized Bill and wanted Bill's uh, autograph. And Bill said, well, if I give you my autograph, what are you going to give me? And the guy said, well, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a sawyer. And Bill goes, what? I'm a, I'm a sawyer. I, I play the saw. You play the what? <laughs> and he goes, I'll go get it and I'll bring it in. So he goes out to his truck and brings in, you know, a craftsman, 32 teeth per inch, four inch handsaw and a, a, a boom box and plugs it in. And, and with a bow, like a, like a, uh, 
a violin bow, puts the, puts the saw between his knees and bends it, and then by changing the tension on the saw, plays the saw with the bow to cats. Memory. <laughs> I'm in a restaurant at Denny's with Bill Shatner and Leonard Nimoy, and there's a guy with a bow and a saw. And it was like, I didn't have a camera. I should have taken a picture because it was. That's amazing. That's amazing. Laughed, laughed for years after that. Who, who knew? I, I had no idea. I, I had no idea you could play the saw. That's amazing. Well, you can oh. in Ridgecrest. <laughs> can in Ridgecrest. Oh, man. I, I'm curious if you have any thoughts about the future of the business coming out of this pandemic. You know, we're recording this while we're all still sheltering in place. And uh, it looks like California, California is going to start to open up. But production is is tricky. I remember somebody was just telling me they were on a call and one of the things that is being considered, PAs will be responsible for wiping down all the sets at the beginning and end of every day. And I was thinking, boy, that is a terrible idea. Um, what, what is, uh, you and I were kind of chatting even a little bit before we got started here. Um, Kind of looking at no one, real, none of us really know. But what's your guess in terms of what's it going to look like in the short term, uh, getting things back up into production? I think there's two issues in the short term that have to be solved before we go back to work. One is insurance. What level of risk are the studios financiers willing to take? And then I think the second is what level of risk is the actors willing to take? Because Everyone else behind the camera can protect themselves or we think we can protect ourselves at the moment with masks and social distancing and less people on set. Um, but actors, you know, who's going to work with Tom Hanks for 10 hours and be sure that they're going to be safe? And is Tom going to feel safe that he won't get reinfected with extras? So going back to Japan, you know, how do, how do we work with 150 extras the last day we were shooting, we had 150 extras and we had about 150 crew. That's a lot of people wearing masks, but nobody's wearing a mask on camera. So that level of trust, you know, certainly tests and vaccines and, and uh, data and herd immunity and all those things will get worked out and we'll figure that stuff out. But I don't see that happening next week or next month. Um, I get how you can do a two person show with a 10 person crew and you know, all of that. I just read a 20 page guideline that Lionsgate has. I've seen ones from Ireland. I've seen ones all over and they're, it's more than just PAs wiping down the set. It's, you know, only two people in a location vehicle or everyone drives themselves to uh, the tech scout or, you know, you consider VR scouting. I mean, there's some bizarre, weird ideas. But, you know, look, we don't get on an airplane the same way we did before 9-11. We won't go right. to film sets the same way either. Right. Um, every production company today always wants less people on set. Right. How's that working out? How's that been working out so far? Yeah. You know, 
Yeah, what if what if you get mandated that you have to finish Tokyo Vice with twenty five crew members and only twenty extras? Like like suddenly the creative starts to become impacted in such a way that you that you can see people pushing back and going, Well then why are we even doing this? That's right. And that'll get back to the director. Is the director willing to do that? Is the actor willing to do that? You know, there's lots of good ideas. Well, don't work twelve hours, only work eight. Okay. Well, you know, you tell Michael Mann he can only do one take. You tell Michael Bay, you tell Chris Nolan, you know. So it means more shooting days and more expense if they don't want to do that. Um, those are all creative choices, and that's part of my job, usually, if they choose to bring me back, to uh, help them make those choices and be, be clear. A lot of my job is about clarifying expectations. So if that's what you need, or you need one medic for every 10 crew members, that means on 150 crew, you got 15 medics. You have 15 medics on the set? Really? And that means people that are trained, not PAs. You've got to have training and a certificate and some kind of authorization. And what does the DGA say? And how do the, what is SAG going to agree to? And, you know, it's not impossible. It's a puzzle to figure out. But... There's no, there's no rulers. There's no, there's no uh, yardsticks. There's no hard measurements yet to go by. We don't even know if the antibody tests are, are worthwhile. So I, d I think we have to hunker down a bit. And as I said at the beginning, I'm used to working my ass off for six months and then six months off. So it doesn't feel that abnormal to me other than having to be home all the time. Um, but I think it's going to take a while. Now, you know, I'm optimistic. I think some good things can come out of this. I was reading the other day that somebody was suggesting, I think it's a great idea, that down the road, you know, maybe Disney buys AMC theaters uh, or somebody that's on the, you know, going out of business, Regal or whoever's on the edge of bankruptcy. And now they have a place to theatrically distribute and show their product. They can walk you out the Disney store that'll have to come out of the mall anyway. Um, and they can create a whole Disney, or Apple could do the same and make a whole Apple environment in, in those theaters. It actually, it actually could be a good thing that changes the landscape in a way that it's not, you know, it's, it's about that 1948 Paramount decree about studios owning theaters, if that gets struck down, which the Trump administration is talking about, then that might be good for Disney or Apple to create a whole new environment. So I'm optimistic that we'll get back to that. People still want to go out. People still want to be in community. You still want to see a movie with other people in a dark room. Churches want to be together. I mean, there's a whole thing that is not going to go away. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to watch everything on my phone. I'm sorry. Right. Um, right. But you and, and I are, di but you and I are different in that, in that, you know, when I, when I talk to high school students and, and other, like they, they, they don't really go to the movies much unless it's one of these big Marvel films. They're, they're completely content with watching stuff on their phones. And you know what, that, that may be the new environment. Maybe the yeah. new environment is big blockbusters and big event pictures on a right. big screen and it becomes more of an event like going to a Broadway play. 
Right. That's it. Right. And, uh, you know, smaller stuff on the streaming platforms and on your phone and 10 minute hunks. But, you know, the, the demise of movies since television was invented is legendary and it hasn't happened yet. And even Broadway was, was uh, projected to fall apart. Yep. And Broadway, until the pandemic, was having a banner years. Yep. So, I think that's the, I honestly, the, in, in looking at this, I, I think that's actually the, the best model going forward is Broadway. I think you're looking at yeah. fewer theaters showing fewer films, but the ones that they show are the big ones that draw in mass amount of people to those particular shows, those bigger films. If anything that's happening now, it's, it's stuff that we thought would take five years to happen is taking five weeks. Right. <laughs> that's right. So, you know, we've known that big movies are the only ones that are going to demand and be able to hold your attention in theaters. Right. And now that may be forced on us. Yeah. Maybe that's not a bad thing. Yeah. So, uh, look, there's still, we, we're, as human beings, we want storytelling. We love to tell stories. We love to, that's the way we train our youth around stories, around the campfires, where you can learn about hunting without being actually endangered and, and, and have to go out and fight a mountain lion. You can hear about it around the campfire and stories and learn about it. And that's how we've been teaching, you know, our youth for, you know, millennia. I don't think it'll change. I think it'll take new forms. Movies aren't going to go away. People still love the, the journey of the hero in two hours. And, 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 and that form's going to stay. New forms will open up. The pile gets smaller, but it's not going to go away. I'm curious what, what your thoughts are on this whole, um, you know, I think it's AMC and these other guys who are, who are now saying they're going to refuse to play Universal Comcast films because of Trolls 2 and all this is just a big game of chicken that, you know, like, I'm just curious if you think that there's actually something, something to this. Well, I think it is a game of chicken and I think they'll, it's a position they're taking and they'll see until, until the theaters, until Universal has some product that the theaters want, you know, Fast and Furious 11, until right. they get something that, that they want, the new Taylor Swift movie or something that, you know, they can't live without, then they'll change their mind. I mean, that's, it's, it's sort of, it's a bit silly to take that hard position so early. I mean, trolls for kids and the pandemic, you know, let's see if there's other movies that, that uh, harden that pattern that say that people are giving up on theaters. Uh, you know, they sell themselves short too quickly by taking that position. I think it diminishes them doesn't diminish universal. And that's what I thought too, because all the films that, that they're saying, like Warner Brothers is releasing the Scooby-Doo. You know, I've got two small kids, so I keep up to date on this stuff. Uh, you know, Warner Brothers is releasing this, the, their big Scooby-Doo. This is their uh, relaunch of Scooby-Doo. They've decided they're going to release it, uh, VOD. Uh, Disney announced that they're going to move one of their shows to uh, one of their big summer movies to Disney+. Plus. I just feel like what you're saying is it just seems way too early for them to draw a line in the sand. And it just seems a bit unreasonable. And even the other films that have come out, um, uh, they, they, 
it just seems like specifically kids films it, it, the people are saying hey look let's just help parents out right now uh we're not trying but but uh, i don't know if they, they're seeing it like that <clears throat> yeah it, it diminishes them it, yeah. it, it, if anything it doesn't it doesn't reflect poorly on universal you know the business people look at universal and go that's pretty smart you took advantage of it and you and you pulled yourself out of the fire Oh, parents, parents, you know, the ones who are actually paying the money yeah. are grateful for it. Yeah. yeah. But it may not be a long-term trend. It may be a long-term trend, but I doubt if, you, you know, I, I'd be surprised if AMC can exist and survive without films from one of the major suppliers. There's very few suppliers these days of big motion pictures. Now, um, Disney has 40% of the market, but, um, you know, Universal got 10%, 15%. I don't know. You, it's, it's dangerous to cut off one of those suppliers. Yeah. Any thoughts on the Academy um, changing their mind on films played in theaters? That seems smart for this year. Seems smart. They'll go back to it the next year, I think, when theaters come back. I think also in the, the announcement, they combine some categories. It'll be interesting to see if the Oscar show goes on. That's the big moneymaker. So. Yep. Now that's way in advance. That's not until February or so next year, but those are big money makers for those, for SAG, for all those places. So it'll be interesting. That'll hurt them if they can't do that. Um, you also notice that it was announced, this is the last year of DVDs that'll come out of screeners. So they're fully gonna move to online streaming, which you know, is probably good news but uh, that's another sign of the times that's moving very fast, much faster than anyone thought. Yeah, yeah. The I um, gone are the days of uh, people passing their uh, screener copies around. I mean, no one actually does that, Ralph. I'm not saying anyone's actually. Oh, of course not. Of course not. <laughs> the uh, what are some of your favorite? What are some of your favorite films? And um, and is there? Is there something, is there anything that you, you know, obviously being someone who has been in the business as long as you have, um, is it hard for you to turn off even now? Is it hard for you sometimes to turn off that, that producer, oh, they should be doing that, or oh man, that was a big mistake, I saw that. Is it hard for you sometimes to turn that off and just and sit back and enjoy a film? I try to sit back and enjoy it, and I don't think, it, it's not hard to turn it off. It's just, you know, we're, we're, watch, we're re-watching The Crown right now on Netflix and the writing is so good. And it's, you know, even it's on the small screen that draws you in. And every night we look forward to watching a couple episodes and uh, you know, my wife and I, and uh, it, it's fun just to get lost in that story and that world and those characters. The other night Raiders Lost Ark came on, uh, CBS is restarting some Sunday night movie and I couldn't stop, I couldn't stop watching. So. I have pretty, you know, pedestrian taste. I like the big blockbusters. I like most of the Marvel movies. Um, I like Ben-Hur. I like Gladiator. I like those big hero stories, Mission Impossible, Star Trek, whatever it is, that, you know, you get to go be with a, a, a real hero, flawed, you know, hero for two hours and learn how they make choices, what they value. To me, that's interesting and fun to sort of get lost in it. 
and you keep wanting to go back to be with Maximus. You know, you keep wanting to go back and see how he makes those choices. Yeah. And it's why we are able to quote lines from those movies, but we can't remember what the theme of last month, last Sunday's sermon was. <laughs> you know, because it's great storytelling. And, you know, go back and watch some of the classics and that's kind of fun too. So, well, you know what? I have to tell you, I'll, and we'll close with this. I, um, I was a big fan of the original, as a kid growing up, I was a big fan of the original Mighty Joe Young. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, loved it as a kid. And when I saw the, the remake that you did at Disney. Ron Underwood. Um, yeah, Ron Underwood. But I, but I want you to know that now I watch it with my kids. I show it, you know, I showed it to my kids. And watching that film through their eyes is so much fun. Yeah. Um, and I, I just, you know, you've reached kind of a place in your career where you're fortunate enough to be able to have been a part of, yeah. you know, these different films where now a different generation is able to look at your films. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for you're making nice. films that I can watch with my kids and, and, you know, not every film I need to watch with my kids, of course, but. I'm grateful for the films that I can watch with my kids and, and it, and it brings something different to me as an audience member. Now when I can watch them through their eyes. Thank you. It's, it's, it's enormously satisfying to think that kids are in, who weren't thought of when we made the movie are enjoying the, the storytelling that we work so hard on. And I think, you know, when we aimed at kids specifically, like in the Fantastic Four movies, the first two that I made, I mean, that's where I also butted heads with the studio. Cause I, you know, those are characters that are in fun colors and they work in the daylight and yep. they, you know, they're not afraid of the public and they're made for kids. Yep. It's not X-Men, it's not dark. X-Men yep. uniform looks stupid in the day. <laughs> but but in, the X-Men movies are nighttime movies. And Fantastic Four movies are daytime. And um, it's fun when kids enjoy that humor and those characters and that stuff, even though they weren't thought of. And the same with Hocus Pocus, the same with even some of the earliest Star Trek movies, The Voyage Home with the Whales. There's kids today that enjoy that movie. And that was made in 86. That movie's 30 years old, 35 years old. I, um, so I loved those films. I grew up on those films those films are, are so much fun and yeah i just ralph i think that a lot of times you probably because you know you're still in it you're it's probably hard sometimes for you to kind of look back and see yeah. and kind of be introspective but a fascinating thing about art is your films and your art will outlast you and that's a fascinating right. concept well and, and that's why you gotta also make good choices that's right you know and i, I learned that early on that you got to make good choices because yeah your grandkids will watch them and go the heck were you thinking? <laughs> what made you do that movie? You know, so, hey, questions at some point. So, hey, this has been fantastic. I'm so grateful to you. Um, I want to thank That's you. Per, you you've been a uh, you've been a mentor of mine. You've been a friend to me. You've been a, so gracious and and kind with all your support that you've given to Act One over the years, and um, you've helped so many people. And um, just grateful for the time you gave me today and uh, just thanks for all that you do. You bet. Thank you. Thanks for thinking of me and um, we'll do it again sometime.
Yeah. Can I, uh, is it, if it's okay, I like to close these by praying for our guests. Yeah. Can I pray for you real quick? Sure. Please. Yeah. Thank you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. And uh, man, just uh, thank you for this great conversation with Ralph. And I just, I thank you for him. And I, I thank you for just who he is. I thank you for um, the way in which uh, you have used him to help so many other people. Um, God, I just pray a blessing upon his life. I pray a blessing upon his, um, his wonderful marriage with uh, Judy. I pray, God, that you would just um, bless them, bless their family, um, their relationship with his kids. And um, God, I pray for um, <clears throat> all of his uh, career endeavors, that you would continue to go before him and, and uh, provide unique opportunities and challenges for him uh, to, uh, to tackle and to, and to take on. And uh, God, I just pray that uh, you would uh, continue to just um, use Ralph as a beacon of light, uh, as a beacon of truth and beauty and goodness um, uh, in, all of his, uh, in all of his endeavors. And just thank you for this time. We pray this in Jesus' name and your promises we stand. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Act One Podcast. To learn more about our programs, visit us online at actoneprogram.com. Thank you.